Good morning. Good morning. I would say thanks for the warm welcome, but that would be stupid. It's going to be warmer the next few days. It is good to be with you and to share again. We started a couple weeks ago, we introduced the Sermon on the Mount, which Brian is going to be taking you through this summer, the Beatitudes particularly. And Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are called the Sermon on the Mount. Now this sermon happened early in Jesus' ministry. He was still establishing himself as a teacher and uh, as a rabbi in that area. And we know from the last few verses of chapter 4, before we get to chapter 5, that Jesus was developing quite a following. Because it says in in chapter 4, verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So he was beginning to get a lot of people following him, mainly, I think, because of the miracles that he was doing. Because it tells us there that he was doing miracles of all types. And anyone who needed to be healed, he healed. It says that Jesus sat down to teach his disciples. He wasn't tired. Rabbis in that day sat down to do their teaching. So this teaching was really designed, according to Matthew, as he wrote it, for the disciples. But we know that other crowds came around to listen in to what he was teaching because In chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 28 and 29, it says that after Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, so I'll go over that again. But they were amazed not only because of the subject matter, because Jesus' teaching was very different than anything they had been used to hearing from their typical religious teachers. It was very different. And the other thing was, is that they listened because of how he delivered the message. You know, when you've been around people that talk about a topic, and you can tell when they don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't take long, does it? But it says here that they, he taught as one had authority, as one who really understood and knew what he was talking about. In this section, in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't teach us how to be saved. He doesn't give us a list of do's and don'ts, which was typical for their rabbinical teaching, because they had a list, in addition to the law, the the Pharisees had put together a list of all understanding. 600 more things that they needed to do. But Jesus doesn't teach them do's and don'ts. What he does is he teaches them on what their life should look like under relationship with him. Let me read to you again for your reading 
the first few verses of Matthew uh, chapter 5, I'll actually begin with verse 3. These are the Beatitudes, 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some translations don't use the word blessed, they use the word happiness, or happy. And that's not a bad translation necessarily of the word, but I think part of the problem with us when we hear happy, we define it a little differently maybe than what this original Greek had in mind. Therefore, I want us to really understand, happiness is an emotion. Blessed is a spiritual state of being. Emotions come and go. Blessings stay. Happiness is circumstantial. Blessed is concrete. If my circumstances are in a certain way that I agree with or meet my expectations, my chances of being happy are very good. But if someone changes my circumstances, what? I'm no longer happy. Happiness is momentary. Blessed is eternal. I think it's very important for us to keep that in mind. Matthew is talking about our spiritual life here. The Beatitudes are counterintuitive in that they run in the opposite direction of the way that we typically think about things, and they were countercultural in that they went against the grain of society's norm. Of all the Beatitudes, perhaps the most counterintuitive and the countercultural is the one we're going to look at today, which is the second one. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Remember the word association game we used to play? Somebody gives you a word and you say the very first thing that pops into your mind. If, I were, if we were to play that game this morning and I were to give you the word mourning or mourn, you'd probably respond with some word that was associated with pain or loss. We mourn over different things. Those of us that seem to have, uh, those of us who have a much longer view from our rear view mirror than we do through our windshield have experienced mourning of some type. I know I have. To be very honest with you, I'm mourning today. My oldest daughter, if I can even share this with you, my oldest daughter in March of 2020, or 
2020, was diagnosed with, with uh, stage four colon cancer. And so she underwent nine months of treatment, chemo, radiation. Uh, it, was, it was ugly. But a few weeks ago, she was, from a scan, they said she was clear. Only to find out two days ago that they found two more tumors. I'm in mourning. We've all experienced things that cause us to mourn on one level or another. The loss of a loved one, the fracturing of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a friend at work, the death of a child, the list goes on. To mourn is to be brokenhearted. You know, it's interesting, but mourning wasn't anything new to the Jewish people. The mourning experience to the Jews was almost an art form. The normal mourning period for a person in Jewish culture was seven days. And in some cases, in the Old Testament, some of the stories we find there, they mourned for 30 days. In fact, as you study Jewish history, they even had people who made a living mourning for other people. They were professional mourners. What a sick job. You know. <laughs> Jesus obviously wasn't going to teach them anything about mourning. They knew about mourning for hundreds of years. When he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That was almost like a, duh, they knew all about mourning. They knew all about mourning. But remember, as I said in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the, the leaders, teachers of the religious law. If we had been in the crowd, we would have been listening closely to see, what is he talking about? Because he's talking as one who has authority and really knows what he's talking about. And he's talking about mourning. We know about mourning. No? Maybe there's something else because of the way that he's speaking to us. And what he is saying, there's something else that he's talking about. Well, let's put this one into context. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, remember the lesson of the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is looking beyond material poverty. Poor in spirit is the result of a true encounter with God. Poor in spirit comes from seeing myself in the light of God. When I see my spiritual condition for what it is in the light of God, it's then that I mourn over sin. Jesus is teaching about mourning over our sin and our sinful condition. And I don't think that's the way we normally think about that when we read this verse. 
Let's face it, mourning over our sins is not something we naturally do. It's not fun. So we'll try to escape it the same way we do mourning over loss. Busyness. For some people, playing endless hours of video games. For others, marathon watching a new season of whatever. Just unplugging and not thinking about it. You know, there's a big difference between a mistake and a sin. A mistake is a screw-up, an error, a miscalculation. You regret a mistake. You apologize for a mistake. You might even make amends for a mistake. But you don't mourn a mistake. What you mourn is sin. You have to stop and mourn over your own sin. Many times we don't do it because our culture stands at odds with doing anything like this. We have a culture that says if it feels good, do it. And don't you dare stand in the way of anyone else. Our culture is not one that says you need to take a sober look at your life and, and change what isn't right. Instead, our culture says you need to take a sober look at your life and make sure everyone says that what you're doing is right, whatever that may be. There's another reason that we don't mourn over our sin, I think, and it's really the two sides of the same coin. We don't understand the severity of sin or the glory of God. It's because of, God's, because of the greatness of God's glory that our sin is so grievous. You know, if someone were to come in and rush up on the stage here and hit me in the jaw, and no, don't do this. This is a, this is a what if. You know? If someone is to rush up to here on the stage, though, and hit me in the jaw, the worst they would probably get is assault and battery if I was to press charges. Or maybe if, if they have a prior record, they might do a little bit of time at a minimal security facility. Or most likely, they're just going to pay a fine and get probation. Now, assume that instead of me, it's the President of the United States up here on stage. Now, politics aside, I know some of you would like to rush up and punch him. But we're not going there this morning. But if someone were to rush the stage, they'd probably be dead before they got within 10 feet of this podium. There'd be Secret Service agents everywhere at every exit of the sanctuary. And because the pres the, an assault on the president isn't, oh, well, it's no big deal. No, no. And you get a fine. Assault on the president is a federal offense. What's the difference? We're both humans. The difference is he's a president human. It's his status, and it's because of his status that a sin against him is so grievous. And yet I think many of us tend to think lightly when we sin against the almighty creator of the universe, the Lord and master of every formation of atoms that's ever existed, past, present, and future, and we think lightly of that. 
None of us has a perfect grasp on God's glory. I believe that when we stand before him, we will be completely astounded by his perfection, by his immense knowledge and and his amazing power, and by his perfect watch and care over every little thing that happens. No matter how closely we walk with him in this life, when we stand before him in heaven, we'll be blown away by the perfection of his glory. If that's true, we ought to mourn when we sin against him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. They have a sin problem. But worse than that, they have a toleration of sin problem in their midst. They've got a guy in their church that's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And instead of dealing with this problem, instead of saying, hey, repent or get out, we don't do that here. They're saying, good job. Look how gracious God is. This is a testimony to God's glory. Paul writes to them and says in chapter 5, you're arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? It's a statement that says, you're thinking way too highly of yourself, and way too little of God. You ought to mourn. Well, 1 Corinthians, when you look at it, it's really an angry letter. Paul's ticked. He's mad at this church. But 2 Corinthians is a very fatherly and loving letter because the people there have actually repented. In the seventh chapter, Paul writes, I rejoice, not because you're grieved, meaning it doesn't make him happy to make them sad, but he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. You turned away from your sin. You felt a godly grief. You know you can have a godly grief? Godly grief, Scripture tells us, produces repentance, which leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death, See, he understands that mourning and mourning over their sin was not joyful, but was painful. He understands that. But he rejoices that something good came out of it. And when we talk about blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, that's really what it means to have dual purpose of I'm mourning, but at the same time, I'm blessed because God will make something good out of it, and I do have comfort coming. Another thing, we also mourn for our sin because we love God. Remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, 
your mind, and your strength. You know, you don't mourn when you sin against somebody you don't care about. Sure, maybe you're sad that you got caught doing something, or you don't want an innocent bystander to get hurt. Something along those lines, but you really don't mourn over that that much. You mourn when you hurt somebody you love. Now, guys, no show of hands here. But how many of you have done something that hurt your wife? That cut her to the bone? You know, have you ever been in an argument when you say something that just crosses the line? You know, it's one of those times of, uh, that I call a heated fellowship. As soon as the sentence leaves your mouth, You just want to try to grab it back and pull it back, but you can't. And it just hits her full force. And you know what? In that moment, it doesn't matter what you were arguing about. The only thing you can do at that moment is just stop and say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Because when you hurt someone you love, it cuts back at you. And so when we talk about loving the Lord your God, when we sin against him, we ought to stop and say, God, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And then mourn over that. You know what? In that moment, God will send you the most amazing comfort. Because it's comfort in knowing Christ. It's the comfort that comes in saying that it was my sin that weighed me down and held me prisoner. He has set me free. You know, that's how we started in the Christian life, right? As one of my friends says, We get downwind of ourselves. We see ourselves in the light of God. And when we do, we know we need a Savior. You mourn over your separation from God. And then God bridges that gap. Here's this Jesus teaching who lived a life you couldn't live as an absolutely perfect one. And instead of accepting the rewards thereof, he accepted the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. As we mourn over our sin, he sends us comfort and perfect and full forgiveness. But unfortunately for many of us, It seems as though we spend the rest of our Christian lives trying to forget that we really needed him. We minimize the amount of time we spend in confession and drawing close to God. But if you want to experience that comfort, you have to go through the mire. You have to say, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Search me, O God. 
See if there is any unclean thing in me. We have to see ourselves in the light of God. For that's where you mourn over your sin and you accept the comfort that God offers in the gospel. You know, we actually have to really almost preach the gospel to ourselves every day as a reminder. When we come before God, we mourn over sin. And he comforts us through the gospel. So when does this blessed part kick in? For Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Why is it blessed to mourn? Why? Because Jesus said, they will be comforted. You can be comforted. Your sins can be forgiven, even today. You see, if you're a mistaker, all you can do is try harder. And that was the way the old law was. They made a mistake by violating the law, then they try harder. They, of course, would offer a sacrifice, but then they would try harder to be better, to do it right. If you're a mistaker, you can try harder. That's all you can do. But if you're a sinner, all you can do is repent. Trying hard does not absolve our sin. It's repentance. It's seeing us where we are in the light of who God is. Seeing ourselves honestly, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. That's then when we repent. We don't just try harder. So as we close these thoughts this morning, there are three things I'd like to suggest to you. Accept it. Because God is offering relief from the emotional and judicial pressure of your sin. He's offering you forgiveness in Christ over your sin. Then accept the comfort that he offers of your forgiveness. If you're at a point this morning where you have never done that, and you really don't have a relationship with God, and you really haven't thought of it, about it that way, and I encourage you this morning to make that decision. Seek out someone to pray with you after the service. Or maybe you've been walking with God for a while, but you've fallen into the trap of trying to minimize the sin in your life. But as you do that, you're also minimizing confession. Take a moment, go home. Take 15 minutes, spend time in confession. Confess your sins before God. Experience the comfort and forgiveness that Jesus offers. And then the last thing that I want you to do with this comfort is to give it away. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians the first chapter, verses 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. So Christians, if you know the comfort that comes from having your sins forgiven, if you know the mercy of God, then go and give it away. That means that you go and sit down and you weep with those who are weeping. You mourn with those who are mourning. And you be an agent of God's grace and His comfort to people who desperately, desperately need Him. Sometimes that may be in absolute silence. Just your presence there with Him. At other times, the Holy Spirit will prompt you to speak and will give you the words to say. But share it. Give it away. God works through us. That's plan A, and there is no plan B. We are to share what he has done in our lives. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I trust this morning that you have mourned your sin, that you are experiencing God's comfort. God bless you. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Father God, we just thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for your word. And we just pray, Lord God, that you can continue to watch over us, guide us, and protect us as we go throughout our week. We love you, we praise you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.